do better. Welcome to Do Better Podcast, a digital content hub from Asade, built for minds interested in doing better. Knowledge ideas, perspectives, and research insights on topics that matter. Business advice for better decisions and growth. Latest on the world of innovation and ideas. A look inside a global world beyond borders and an open view on social challenges. You can leave your comments and suggestions on dobetter.isade.edu. Professor Richard Voyatsis is an academic with a wide international profile, recognized for his contributions in the fields of emotional intelligence, leadership, and sustainable change. Richard, you have the floor. Thank you very much, Ricard. And uh, thank you for all of my friends and colleagues at Isade uh, for making this possible. The topic is one which we've been wrestling with for not just uh, a few decades at Isade and trying to create uh, learning experiences in the MBA and other programs, the specialty masters and exec ed and all that, to help people learn these skills. But it really is something which in this day of uh, forced isolation, and repetitive activities where, you know, you get up and a lot of people are reporting they can't tell whether it's, you know, Tuesday or Friday or Sunday and the days all blend together. And in somehow that degree of social disconnectedness, it's easy for us to feel anxious because one of the things that stimulates stress in the human body is uncertainty. And it, the major challenge that we face these days is how do we motivate ourselves? How do we stay excited or engaged and bring our talent, not just to our work, but to our families and our communities and all the things that we were doing that were important before. And then of course, for those of us who are in helping positions, the basic dilemma is how do we motivate other people? The people either reporting to us or our clients, or our students, our patients, our subordinates. The dilemma is when you motivate somebody, you don't just motivate them to perform, you motivate them to learn, change, and adapt. And certainly in times like these, we're having to adapt uh, almost on a daily basis to things. And the dilemma is that while learning and change is stressful by itself, having to adapt and with the uncertainty adds. And at this level of stress, our bodies, our minds, are overdosed. And it sounds odd that we're not having to commute, we're not having to get on planes or trains or cars or motorbikes, but we actually are overstressed. And most people are reporting the degree of stress, which hits us, you know, for those of us in professional roles and causes a degree of academic, I mean, of cognitive and perceptual and emotional impairment. And anytime you're in charge of somebody else or trying to help them, whether as a manager or as a, a change agent or a coach or a trainer or as a parent, there's another level of stress because you feel responsible for others. I started working on the early version of this theory in 1967 when I left the aerospace field and designing interplanetary vehicles in 66 and 67, and I kind of moved into the field of psychology. I started working on this early, uh, an early version of this theory. But the whole idea is that through all of these decades, over 50 years of specific longitudinal research, it is very clear that when individuals 
change in sustained ways when they become open to new ideas and to learning or changing in a way that sticks. Not just your claim that you'll become more physically fit and you join a health club and you go for three weeks and then stop, or you want to go on a diet and, or, you know, what's more relevant for most of my friends in, in Spain is you want to stop smoking. Uh, you know, you do after a few days and then you go back. It becomes very clear that it's, we need complexity theory, that there are five key moments of emergence, the ideal self, some sense of who you want to be, what kind of person, what you want out of life, a personal vision. A second ends up being a sense of how you come across to others, which I see as the real self. And then the inevitable personal balance sheet of your strengths and weaknesses as you compare it to your ideal. The learning agenda, which is something you would love to do, not just performance improvement plan or goals. And then the actual trying out of new behaviors. And then at the center of it all are these long, these caring, trusting relationships. Now, what this has to do with your recent recollection of key people is that inside of each one of us are these two, again, using concepts from complexity theory, emotional attractors, a positive and negative. And they operate like they pull you towards them, but not into them. They pull you around them like planets revolving around the sun. The positive emotional attractor is being in the parasympathetic nervous system, hormonally, and engaging a neural network called the empathic network. The negative emotional attractor is being in the stress or sympathetic nervous hormonal system and engaging a different neural network, which is very often called the analytic network, having positive versus negative feelings, thinking of possibilities versus seeing them as problems, uh, thinking of dreams versus expectations, optimism versus pessimism, hope versus peers, fear, strengths versus weaknesses. These are these two major things. When we have done research, and we started in 2002, on these moments which people found to have enduring motivation for them to be open to learning and change, we have found that 80 to 100% of every sample we do this exercise with, and we have doctoral students do two-hour interviews with people and so forth, 80 to 100% of them start in the positive emotional attractor. If you start in the negative emotional attractor, you close people down. So that means that if you try to give somebody feedback or kind of give them some motivation, you very often people say to change, here's how lousy you're doing, or here you just got a C on this test. It actually works the other way because it stimulates the stress hormones and analytic networks in the body. The mind closes down and the change effort stops. So sustained desired change starts almost always in the positive emotional attractor. And because the negative is the body's default, where we go to survive, I call these two thrive and survive. Now we have to have both. We have to survive. And you know, if you're about to be eaten or uh, punched or shot, you don't wanna be worrying about flourishing and thriving. You wanna be worrying about surviving. But if we only live life and do go through work in the survival mode, it's a hollow victory. And it feels really boring. We need the thriving, which is the PEA, the flourishing. The problem is that because the negative are so strong in power that we have to overcompensate. So we need a lot more of the PEA experiences. This leads us to the fact that when we talk about coaching, which in our new book, uh, helping people change, which is just coming out in Spanish. Um, it came out a, a few months ago in English from Harvard Business Review Press. 
we're using coaching as anytime you're trying to help somebody else, whether as a manager, as a physician, a nurse, a trainer, uh, a formal coach, could be as a teacher, could be as a parent, that when you engage to trying to help them or coach them with compassion, it's what the label we give to coaching to the PEA, this positive emotional attractor. But the problem is that most of the time we use a technique called coaching for compliance, is we try to get the other person to do what we want them to do. That's coaching to the NEA. And although sometimes it's necessary, most of the time it results in the person closing down and the non-sustainability of any effort. So the dilemma that we face is how do we help this change. Now, the, the real danger here is that emotions are contagious. We know that except for people with Asperger's or autism spectrum disorder, the empathic network, formerly called the default mode network, in our brain allows us to pick up on the emotions of others in eight to 40 thousandths of a second, deeply unconscious. They're going to pick up how we're feeling in our state whether we want them to or not. And one of the most dangerous things that we infect other people with, I mean, everybody has been for the past four months really worried about COVID-19. The statistics, I mean, if you have contracted it and if you have had a loved one who've died, it's traumatic. And I feel bad for you and that's horrible. But when you ask on a probability basis, how likely are you to get infected I know in the United States, it was less than one quarter of 1% of the population got infected. And of those who got infected, it was about three quarters of 1% got infected seriously enough so that they died. So the actual probability was microscopic. And yet what was throughout the, the world and is still going on is a tremendous fear. Far more people have been financially dislocated. I mean, in the tens of millions, not just losing jobs, but losing their ability to, to have their businesses continue or their work, interrupting it. Uh, children not being able to go to school and um, as caring and loving as parents are, they aren't necessarily good teachers. So all of a sudden homeschooling uh, doesn't work quite as well for most people. And all of that means that we have been bombarded, overloaded with what we call the sacrifice syndrome or the stress syndrome. And I can summarize this by saying physiologically with under a quarter of a second when a stress episode starts, and it could be as mild as a cell phone dropping a call or as major as, am I going to live through, am I going to have a job after this crisis is over? Your body secretes a bunch of endocrines uh, into your body, which move blood to the muscle groups and stop. I mean, it raises your blood pressure, but it stops your immune system from functioning. So in fact, feeling stressed about the COVID-19 virus makes you more vulnerable to the COVID-19 virus. And it also stops neurogenesis, the conversion of new neural tissue. And what happens in all of this is we don't feel on top of our game and we start perceiving things as threatening, even though they aren't. Now, the real antidote to all of this is this renewal system in our bodies, which again, operates the same thing. In thousands of a second, our bodies secrete a different set of endocrines, which drop our blood pressure, drop our pulse rate, slow our breathing down. And it's in this state that our immune system kicks into high gear. 
It operates its best. In this state, our cognitive abilities operate their best. In this state, neurogenesis occurs. Your body literally replaces nerve tissues lost due to stress. Your perceptual field goes from 180 degrees typically in your peripheral vision down to 30 under stress, and it can go back. And the same thing to openness to other people. So the challenge that we face is how do we balance this stress with renewal? And that's why so many people have been talking about people meditating. We know this from multiply published studies in medicine and psychology. Meditation, yoga, prayer really helps, especially to a loving God. Physical fitness helps. Feeling hopeful about the future helps, which is why watching the television news doesn't help. Being in a loving relationship helps. Helping people less fortunate than you helps. Having a dog, cat, or even a horse or monkey helps. It's the stroking, it turns out. Laughter, joy, and playfulness helps in walking in nature. So all of these things help, but we now have the research to say, and I'm finishing a paper right now on a set of studies we did a few, three years ago, to show that not only do you have to introduce a higher number of these each day, smaller time periods, but more episodes of renewal to counteract the stress, but you need a wider variety of them to help it to affect your motivation. So what that means is when you're trying to coach or help someone else, it shouldn't, the context of what you're doing shouldn't be the problem that they're telling you or that they feel lousy. The context should be their dreams, their vision, and the quality of your relationship. Now we know this works. We've done these longitudinal studies. We have actually a total of 39 of them at my university at Case Western Reserve. And with Ricard uh, Sirlavos and Professor Jean-Marie uh, Jean Batista, we've been doing these studies at ESADE as well. And we know that we can have tremendous impact on 25 to 35 year olds, improvement of their emotional and social intelligence behavior. Meanwhile, most above average MBA programs, I won't mention other ones, you know, like ESA or IE, but if they measured themselves, they would probably show about a 2% increase, which would drop off over time. Same thing with training programs in government industry. A major review showed from 1950 to the present, anywhere in the world showed about 11% increase, and then it drops off within a number of weeks. So how are we having this impact? It's in, in the courses at Asade, which we call the lead course, and the courses at Weatherhead, and now at Gafuscati and Venezia, it is because we spend a third of the course focusing on vision. And a part of this is the neurological activation. I mentioned the analytic versus the empathic network. These are two networks in our brain that have to do with different parts of the brain. We need both. We need the analytic to make decisions and solve problems and focus. We need the empathic to be open to new ideas, to learn, and to be open to other people. The problem is these two networks are antagonistic. So every time you take it's, it's one of the reasons why a lot of graduates of full-time MBA programs and above average MBA programs graduate. I did a set of studies with and colleagues and other uh, groups did, that showed that most full-time MBAs graduate with statistically significantly less social intelligence than they had before they started. So what we want to do is look at these two networks in our brain like a seesaw, and we want to be able to go back and forth and activate them. But to do that, we have to be comfortable with it. And that's the essence of moving yourself in 
the P into the PEA on a regular basis. We actually tested this with an, several fMRI studies, and we were able to show that after 30 minutes of coaching to the PEA, what is your dream 10 years from now versus how are you doing on your courses? Are you doing all your readings? Three to five days later in this, in the functional magnetic resonance, we find that looking at video statements about the person's future, if the person had the PEA, it activated a part of their brain in which they dream. And we then did a second study with 50 rather than 20 people, half males, half females. And we found the same thing, that the PEA session, 30 minutes of it, helped to activate parts of the empathic network and other networks that open you to new ideas in your brain. Whereas the NEA, how are you doing in your problems? Let's solve that, et cetera narrowed people down and it activated more parts of the analytic network. We also found that two or three PEA to NEA sessions in terms of amount of time stimulated the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, this yellow area, the bottom of your prefrontal cortex that produces uh, the direct link to the parasympathetic nervous system. So what we're saying is in the helping process, using my intentional change theory, you really have three major targets you want to do as the opening context to get people going, to motivate them to be open to learn and change and to sustain the effort, their vision, the relationship, and their strengths. And you want to use these uh, tipping points to be able to tip somebody into the PEA. Thank you very much, Richard, for your clear and inspiring speech. Yes, there are some questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, do you have any recommendation for the leader's stress? What do you mean, the leader, the stress of the leader? Yes, a leader who is stressed. Right. So if a, if a person in a leadership position is feeling this kind of stress, that's that slide that talks about the 18 renewal things that they could do. So part of it is, if you're the leader, do them, practice them, start them. If you're coaching or counseling or a peer or a boss or a subordinate of a leader and you want to bring them into it, see if you can engage them in a conversation about if everything came fantastically true 15 years from now, it was way over the you know, coronaviruses. What's, what's our organization going to be like? What's it going to be like? Well, what impact have we had on people? By getting into the dreaming part, you can help a person get the stress relief. Um, but the techniques such as deep breathing and yoga, um, all of these things really do help. Mm. I, I have another question, Richard. I mean, uh, that's assuming that you want to do it without drugs. <laughs> Uh, here you have the, the next question. The, the approach of coaching with compassion seems natural uh, when, when it is the coachee who has the initiative to request coaching. Uh, but how to sell this approach when it is the company that promotes the, the coaching process? That's right. When most companies, when they start, um, really want to push people, you know, and, and they're what I call, they see coaching as being a helping bully. So the dilemma is 
you have to get people to see that you can't push people to change. If they do, they will immediately revert back. You have to pull them to it. And that's where you think about how do you engage this positive emotional attractor. Companies would be better to not implement coaching if all they're going to do is use it to push people around or to try to force people to change. It's better to do nothing than to, to you know, kind of try that and make people dislike the very notion of helping. Mm-hmm. One of the most effective things companies can do these days, uh, of course, is to go to Asade to learn how to be better coaches you know, for their managers, especially in exec ed. But one of the, th- the powerful things they can do is to try to not just hire external coaches, but to train every manager to say a part of his or her job is helping motivate others. And then the no-cost option is to facilitate uh, peer coaching groups, study groups, where people get together in small groups of five to eight, and they help each other. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Another question. Uh, what are the main inhibitors which avoid the change? Stress. Stress is the main inhibitor, because as soon as the person feels anxious or nervous. Um, Like I said, their perceptual ability drops. They can't see things. And their openness to new ideas also drops dramatically, and they miss a lot. They don't see what the competition is doing. They're not aware of how their subordinates are feeling. Uh, They're not even watching what's going on in the marketplace. And all of that at the strategic level is called competition neglect, and it leads to becoming out of date before you can deal with things. Um, Universities worldwide were clinging on to the old model that the only way to teach somebody was to have them sit in a class and have the faculty member espouse certain ideas. Uh, And those of us who were involved in online learning or uh, MOOCs and other things like that over the past few uh, years or decades, have been saying, you know, there are alternate ways. People can, people can learn in a whole, whole bunch of different pedagogies. People have different learning styles. They, they like things. And now this uh, crisis has actually helped a lot of faculty start to understand how to use other pedagogy. That ends up being something that um, could help a lot more people be open to change. Mm-hmm. We have another question which is connected with our last work on uh, setting goals, which is how, how to approach uh, goals uh, and to keep the PA. Right. Um, goals are useful in the change process, but not at the beginning. So the key is what you want to do at the beginning of a change process or a learning process is vest the whole activity in the context of the purpose. What's the vision? What's the the deeper reason for us doing this? And then as you get into it, there is a certain moment in which you can say, okay, this is why we're doing this. This feels fantastic. I'm really inspired by this. Here are a couple things that we have to do. Now, what you're doing is the goals become useful in serving the vision. 
we have multiple research studies neurologically and hormonally and now psychologically, other people have been doing it for decades, showing that if you start the goal setting process at the beginning, people go into the analytic network and their minds close down. Mm -hmm. So in fact, they're irrelevant. That's why when managers think they're motivating people by adding another goal to their dashboard or metric, um, it's not motivating anybody. It's just making them feel good because they're punishing people. But if at a certain point a person really wants to do something, that's when the goal becomes something that facilitates it. So the question is, the goal is not the reason to do it. The goal is in service of the purpose. Thank you. Uh, but what to do when the arousal of the PA take, takes a, a person to an illusory vision far from his reach? Um, in other words, if somebody starts to have a dream and it looks unrealistic. Yeah. So first you have to ask, is the perception of the lack of realism in the mind of somebody who's a pessimist. Because a lot of things are possible. Allowing for the fact that it may not be, then the question is, does the person, is the person able to have a conversation? Because what we found is coming up with the dream by yourself isn't as powerful a motivator as doing that and then talking about it with someone else. And it's in the talking about it with someone else, whether it's a coach or a friend, a manager, a parent, um, or later in life, many of us have that relationship with our spouse or partner. They help us think about not why it's not doable, but under what conditions would it be doable? So if I all of a sudden, you know, even if I did this 50 years ago, and I said, I want to be a basketball player at, at a little over six feet tall, I was not going to be a basketball player. Um, it just wasn't going to work. And um, and that became clear to me at some point. But if I had held on to that dream, it would have been important for somebody to talk about the dream and maybe help me get behind it to say, what was it about being a basketball player that I would have loved? And if it was, I, I loved being on a team and, you know, being on a basketball court and playing with other people. Um, then then the question would be well are there other things i could do in life that has me have me working in teams richard how, how can we use stress in a positive way we need stress to wake up in the morning we yeah. need stress to focus so um right now one of the things that this stress has enabled me to do is to finish writing two academic papers that I've been working on for literally two to three years. Uh, so part of it is stress can help you focus. The, the, the dilemma is in the focusing, you may increase short-term productivity, but it doesn't mean you are learning. So what I've had to do is um, <clears throat> use the focus to get something, to get the writing done. But then I've had to introduce asking colleagues in various places to review it, a critical review, so that I could step back and say, okay, how can I make it better? 
So stress is useful to get things done, to solve a problem. But in the process, um, very often we're not very creative or open to other people about it. So that's why I talked about what you really want to be doing throughout any day, nevertheless the whole week, is going back and forth between stress and renewal. Mm -hmm. There is a question uh, about what, what's, what's your opinion about massive happiness programs? <laughs> They're delusional. <laughs> um, <clears throat> first, happiness in psychological research is not always positive. <laughs> So, although it's it's been used in the pop psych area to say you know it's the great thing, the actual state that's the, in uncontrovertibly positive is that of being um, optimistic, hopeful, loving, caring, even playful. So, um, and and a lot of the times happiness helps us there, but it doesn't always. Sometimes happiness leads to complacency, which goes the other way. Now, when people try to do a massive program, a few of the people, usually less than 30%, feel that are drawn to it, feel this is great. But the other 67% or two-thirds of the people feel it's an imposition. It's You and I have had this conversation for 20 years now. When companies come or governments come to us and ask us for help, you know what we have to do is say, let's start this program in one place. Let's start it small and let's see if it works and let it attract other people. Do not institute a company-wide program because most of the people will feel as if you're forcing them and therefore it's going to be NEA. So the issue is um, the happiness projects aren't a bad idea if you know they're within uh, some degree of sharing positive emotions. But when it's large scale, most of the time people feel compelled and therefore go into the NEA and that defeats the purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, here you are, uh, last question. Uh, how do you think about teaching and coaching people using trust as a vector? Tr trust is imperative. Um, just like the sense of psychological safety, one of my uh, friends and colleagues at Harvard Business School, Amy Emerson was talking, and she and I were talking about this on a McKinsey uh, podcast the other day. Trust, uh, I said in my theory that what's at the middle of the of all of these discoveries is a resonant, caring, trusting relationship with a key other person or persons. Without those relationships, it's hard for us to deal with things in life. Uh, we are not meant to be alone, and we need others. Trust is one of the key parts of that, but trust by itself isn't enough. You need to have, that's why we use the term compassion, more in a Confucian sense of caring rather than uh, feeling bad for the people suffering. But we, we believe that it's when you have these caring relationships, trusted caring relationships, that that's the medium that allows all of this thing to happen. So, in fact, John Lennon was right. It's not all we need, but we certainly do need love. <laughs> uh, 
by the way, th these dates of uh, COVID-19, people cling to the present and prefer not to make plans. How can we help them to project themselves a vision focused on the next yeah. year to activate well, the PAA? If you have your faith, Catholic, Muslim, Jewish, or anything, or like me, Greek Orthodox, you know that there are teachings that say this too shall pass. If you don't, it's worth remembering the horror that Spain went through, for example, in 2009 through 11. The financial crisis was unthinkable. Let me go further back. Prior to 1974, a lot of people were oppressed within Spain, were killed, and were denied the ability of expression and innovation. Uh, I was reminding people on various calls that in the United States, we had a, in the early 80s, uh, going into the mid 80s, we had an AIDS pandemic, an epidemic that is still an epidemic in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, but um, we got through it. We had a polio, most people will not remember this, but I do, but during the, from 1938 to 1955, um, an alarming number of children contracted polio and either died or lost their ability to walk. And the polio virus was one that hit children dramatically more than anything else. And it was unbelievably scary. And it wasn't until the vaccine, which they started to discover in 52, 53, but actually became available in 55, that polio was has been all but eradicated throughout the world. It still is going in some parts of the world. So we do get over these epidemics or pandemics. Um, and it doesn't seem like it when you're at the beginning or in the middle of it. But as you start to see, as the expression is light at the end of the tunnel, you start to feel a sense of hope. I mean, we, we had a serious controversy uh, back in early April when uh, in the United States, when President Trump had said, well, you know, we'd be good if we could start to reopen businesses and reopen things by Easter. And a whole bunch of people said, oh, my God, oh, my God, he's ignoring science. Well, he wasn't ignoring science. The scientists were right there. What he was saying was it would be good if we could, if we could. And uh, what I heard was him saying we need a little bit of hope. <laughs> that at some point we will be through this. Now, it turned out it was nowhere near that soon, <clears throat> but it's what people are feeling now as a restaurant opens and allows people to eat outside. As next week, when Barca and the entire season opens up and people can watch active sports, not just replays. Um, so I, I think realizing that you we will make it through it um, helps. And I think that when you realize that that will happen, then you start to say, okay, um, what do I want my life to be like? And let's assume that we have both a treatment and a vaccine within a year, which seems feasible given the pace that people are going. And sadly, there will be other viruses. Coronaviruses have been around for a long time. SARS was one. And we'll have more of them in the future. But we will develop things and ways of handling it 
Um, people live in areas, uh, and after the financial crisis that hit Spain in 08, 09 through 11, I think a lot of people started to say, okay, I have to be a little more careful. I have to save more money. I have to create a fund. So those, those are some of the things that I think will happen. Uh, I also think that people will be tremendously creative at finding new ways to offer services and products um, throughout the world. So one of the things, you know, you and I are educators. One of the things that's going to be happening is um, I don't have to fly to Europe once a month to do some of the work. You don't have to fly to Buenos Aires, you know, uh, every other month to do some of the work. We will be able to intersperse that with remote learning and sessions. And all of a sudden, education and excitement about learning opens up to a lot more people in the world. That's the kind of innovation that I think will help us in a wide range of our products and services. But it all starts with how you're feeling inside. And you, and if I can summarize, you have an obligation to feel inspired. I mean, this isn't a dress rehearsal. This is a very special gift from our God, the life. You don't want to waste it. So you want to be living and moving closer and closer to your dream. And when you do that, you become positively infectious. And you start to find other people in your families and your communities and at work picking it up and coming together and doing things that before you didn't think were possible. So thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Richard. Again, uh, before to finish, I, I invite all of you who are attending this session and are interested in these uh, topics uh, to visit the SAD Executive Education website, where you will find a renewed repertoire of uh, programs online and face-to-face. -face. And uh, just to finish, the, the book of Richard, this new book of Richard, uh, is already available in all platforms. And <laughs> the print edition uh, can be pre-ordered immediately through Amazon.com and and revertemanagement.com. Thank you so much uh, to all of you who have attended that session and thank you very much for your questions. If you still want to learn more, remember, you can register on our platform, dobetter.asade.edu. That was all for today. Until next time, thank you.